take out your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. You can find the book of 1 Timothy on page 991 in the Pew Bible. As you probably know, today is our last Sunday for the next three months. Some of you are at least hopefully a little sad about that. Some of you are probably a little excited. At least we can get out by noon now on, on Sundays. But we too are a combination of both sadness and excitement. Uh, tomorrow we start the sabbatical you have all so generously uh, given to us. This period of rest where we're going to head south to the Carolinas uh, for an extended period of uh, spiritual refreshment, rest, an opportunity for some focused time on my own spiritual life, the life of my family, as well as to give myself a chance to work on a project I've been wanting to work on for a while. Um, so we're really excited about that. It means a lot to us. Uh, we're thankful for that. Um, we're, we just we can't wait. Um, this, though, this is our home, though. You are our family, and we're leaving for a time, and that's, that's, that's hard. So that got me thinking of the couple of times that I've had to leave my physical family for a longer stretch. I don't think I've been away for longer than a week from my physical family, but even those weeks have been hard and they have been uh, too long. Uh, we just really love my family. Uh, we homeschool our girls, first and foremost, just because we really, really like being around our girls, right? And we just really, really like spending time um, with them. So I work from home. Often what I'm writing here is happening while I'm sitting at my desk while there's multiple girls behind me on the bed doing their reading or distracting me or, or bothering me or something. It's hard for me to be away from my girls because I love them so much. So the few times I have had to go away for a longer stretch, I've always sat them down and had a talk with them. Those talks will cover a number of things, but breaking it down, I want to make sure that I leave them with a word of authority, a word of instruction, and a word of grace. Authority, instruction, and grace. I want to remind them who I am and who they are. I'm their father. We're working on that with Tessa right now. Who's the boss? She ask her, she'll say, who's the boss? Daddy's the boss, right? Who's the boss? Not Tessa, right? God has, God has given me the weighty and privileged responsibility of leading and loving my children. But I'm going away, so I want to remind them of who's in charge while I'm away. So I'll give them a word of authority as reminder. Mommy is the boss. Uh, listen to mommy. Or if Melissa's going with me, Nana or, or Grammy is the boss. Listen to them. Obey them. While I'm away, they need a word of authority. Authority is just one of the most hated words of our culture, but it's actually one of the most important words. Second, my girls need a word of instruction. Here's what they are to do, and here's how they are to behave themselves. There are slightly different rules and things that they need to know at our house compared to Grammy's house. My mom has a thing called Nana's Rules. We argue about that a little bit, um, but there are different rules in different places, so my girls need a word of instruction. But then finally, I want to make sure and leave them with a word of grace, right? a word of affection. Yes, I'm the boss. Yes, you have to listen to Nana. Yes, there are rules and certain things to be done and ways to do them. But most importantly, I love you, right? Lord willing, I'm, I'm coming back for you. You are mine and I am yours. I will miss you and I will return to you. So a word of authority, a word of instruction, a word of grace. And so I thought, before I leave you, my spiritual family, for an extended time away, I also want to leave you with a word of authority, instruction, and grace. And that's why I want to leave you with the book of 1 Timothy. 
This is what you're going to be working through um, in my absence, because this is a letter from Paul while he is absent to Timothy while he leads the church in Ephesus. And in these opening two verses, and then throughout the rest of the letter, I want you to see that Paul leaves Timothy with a word of authority, instruction, and grace, because that's what Timothy needs, and that's what the church needs, always. And 1 Timothy is first and foremost a letter about the church. We are Woodside Community Church, obviously. But what does that mean? We've talked about personal identity in Romans a few weeks ago. We looked at corporate identity a couple of weeks ago from John 3. Well, that's what we're going to continue to do with the book of 1 Timothy. Brothers and sisters, spiritual family, we are a church. But what is a church? And what should it be like? How should it be led? What is its purpose? And how does it accomplish its purpose? That's what 1 Timothy is all about. This, then, is a great opportunity while I'm away to spend some time studying God's manual for the church. Of course, the whole Bible is God's manual for the church, but 1 Timothy is the most specific and practical application of the gospel to the life of the church. This book is just all about church. It's all about what God has done through the gospel of Jesus Christ to form and inform who we are and what we do as his church. You're going to be studying what God's people must believe and how God's people must behave in God's church. Flip over to chapter 3 verse 15. Look at that verse. We've been coming back again and again in John 20 31 uh, as the purpose statement of the book. Well, here's Paul's purpose statement. Here is Paul's big idea that you need to keep in mind over the course of this whole series. He writes at the end of verse 14 that he's writing these things so that, purpose statement, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's 1 Timothy. That's what I want to leave you with. That's the word that you need. Notice in that verse that Paul talks about behavior, that is life, in the household of God, which is the church of God, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So 1 Timothy is behavior in the church, both of which are based upon the truth. What God's people must believe, how God's people must behave in God's church. So the theme I annoyingly came up with was belief and behavior befitting God's church. That's just too obnoxious to leave for the other men to stick to. Uh, Belief and behavior befitting God's church. It's too annoying. So I'm simply going to go with doctrine and life in the church. That's the book of 1 Timothy. Doctrine and life in the church. And Mike can adjust that and tweak that however he sees fit. Doctrine and life in the church. It's important To know what you believe and why. It is important to know what we believe and why. It is important to know how you should act and behave in a way that honors the Lord. It is important to know how we should act and behave in a way that honors the Lord. Paul lays both of those out for us in 1 Timothy. And he gives us this book that is all about the church because Christ is all about the church. 
Last week was the the primacy and the priority of Christ. A Christian's chief concern is Christ. Well, we could expand that. If a Christian's chief concern is Christ, then a Christian's chief concern will also be Christ's church, which is the body of Christ. Which is why, biblically, there's just no such thing as a Christian that is not connected with a church. That's just not a biblical concept. The church is the body of Christ. You cannot have one without the other. Christians have great care for the church. Christians are concerned about the health and life of the church, the very church that Christ gave himself up for. We saw last week that we should love what God most loves. God the Father most loves the Son, and then most loves his children purchased by his Son. God loves Christ and those who are in Christ. God has great care and concern for his church. We too then must have great care and concern for his church. Church, my desire for you is that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, while I'm away. First Timothy can help with that. What if I came back and the church was even stronger and healthier than I left it? First Timothy can help with that. So let me leave you with an introduction and overview of the book that you're going to be looking at for the next 12 weeks with Pastor Mike uh, preaching the bulk of those assisted by Henry and Vijay and Peter. Let me leave you with three parting words because in these verses and then woven throughout the rest of the book, I want to leave you with this word of authority, a word of instruction, and a word of grace. So let's start. Let me read for you 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. That's my text. That's my assignment. But we'll read some other passages as we go and as we give an overview of the whole book. Uh, But pay attention. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is what God wants to say to you today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pause and let's pray before we continue. Father, show us Christ. Father, open up and reveal your word to us. Give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Give us a great attentiveness to the very word that is eternal life. Father, these are words that are inspired by you. These are words spoken by the creator and sustainer and redeemer of the world. Father, I pray that we would delight in these words and that we would hunger for these words and that we would think on them and meditate on them and stew in them. Father, do your work through your word in this time. Father, help me to preach and to proclaim your word clearly. Help me to proclaim it in your power and in your authority. Father, instruct us with that word. Encourage us and give us much grace um, through that word. And Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. So we ask that you would help us now in this time. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, Paul opens with a word of authority. As we've seen in Romans, ancient letters are structured differently and honestly better than our letters. Ancient letters begin with the identity of the author. And so we begin with the identity of the author, and the main thing we want to see is the authority of the author. You catch the connection, you see how those are the same root word there, authority, author. An author is a creator of something. An author is a source 
of something. And as the source of that something, it is the authority on that something. So Paul, as author, is authority. So always be asking yourself and be aware of who or what is your authority. Because everyone has one. As unpopular as the idea is in our culture today, you cannot avoid authority. Authority simply answers the question, well, says who? Authority is the, the right or the power to say so. Uh, the Greek word, I like it a lot, it's exousia. Ex just means out of or from, and ousia is just the verb to be. Right? So power, authority, is it's the right or the power that comes out of being or existence. Again, think again of an author. Right? He creates something out of himself. He has authority over that thing. That's exousia, right or power rooted in identity, the source of the thing. Which means, first and foremost, that only God has absolute authority, as he is the great I am, as he is the great author of all. But there is also then delegated authority, as the authority gives out the right in certain spheres to declare and to command. Authority is, is power. It's, it's the right to determine, to demand, to control, to command. Your authority, the authority in your life, is what gets to answer the question for you, well, says who? And so whether you realize it or not, we all give someone or something the, the last word. Right? We all attribute ultimate authority to someone or something. When you get down to the very bottom, you have something that is the final arbiter or determiner of truth for you. Could be a parent, could be the culture, could be the government, could be some political figure or celebrity figure, tragically, or a holy book, right? You have something that you ultimately point to that answers the question, says who? And I've mentioned before the argument that the main idea undergirding the whole of modernity, right, the whole of our culture, is the rejection of all sources of authority outside of the self. In other words, one of the core ideas of our culture is that only you and you alone can be your ultimate and final authority. How's that working out? <laughs> and I, I know myself. And if I am the ultimate and final authority for myself, then I'm in trouble. Right? I need a word or authority from outside of me. I need something above me. And so do you. The idea that you are your own and only authority could not be more unbiblical and it will make you absolutely miserable because you were designed to operate and flourish under the authority of another. Look at the first verse. Look at how Paul first identifies himself. Here's the identity of the author. Paul, an apostle. And Paul, as apostle, is Authority. Apostle is an authority word. Apostle just means sent one or messenger. One sent with a message. One sent by another. By an authority. An apostle is authority. And that authority is rooted in the other. So Paul keeps going. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right, Paul, not an apostle of Paul, but of another. Of Jesus and this is why Paul's encounter with Jesus and the, the call of Paul is repeated three different times in the book of Acts. Acts is not that long of a book, so it's strange that we get the same story repeated three different times. Why is that? Well, it's to emphasize this point. Paul, the great persecutor of the church, 
is on his way in Acts 9 to continue persecuting the church in Damascus. In Acts 22.4, Paul says that he persecuted this way. Right? They weren't called Christians. They were called the way. He persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. That is, until God intervened. Until Paul, the persecutor, met the risen Christ. Until Paul was born again by the grace of God upon his encounter with the risen Christ. Who then told Paul, as recorded in Acts 26.16, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint. That's another authority word. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen. So Paul, formerly persecutor of the church, was saved by God and then sent by God to proclaim the very gospel of God he had once denied, to build up the very church of God he had once tried to tear down. Paul, God's enemy, by the grace of God, is now God's child. Paul, opposed to God, is now Paul, apostle of God. Look at the verse again. Apostle Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, he keeps going, by command of God. That's another authority word. You do not have the right to disobey the command of one who is in rightful authority over you. As much as I would like it, I do not have the right on all the driving we're about to do to speed and to do whatever I want. They will, as they did last summer, uh, pull me over and give me a ticket. Right? I don't get to just dis- get rid of the law that is above me. Right? How much more than the command of God himself? Right? The only one who has true, ultimate, absolute Authority. The only one who uses that authority absolutely perfectly. All the rest of us mess up sometimes. All the rest of us at some point will abuse authority. Not God. He uses his authority perfectly. So Paul is an apostle of that God. And you can think of an apostle like an, an ambassador. An ambassador does not speak on his own authority, but on the authority of another. An an ambassador does not say what he wants to say, but what he is commanded to say by another. That's Paul, apostle of Jesus by command of God and Christ Jesus. Why is this how he opens his letter? Why such an emphasis on authority to encourage you? No, to compel you, to command you. From the very beginning, verse 1, listen, that's the application of verse 1. Authority answers the question, says who? Paul answers the question at the beginning, says God. Therefore, listen. When God speaks, you must listen. How arrogant and foolish do we have to be to believe that we don't have to or need to listen to God? Paul is claiming from the very beginning of this letter, for and about the church, that he is speaking the very words of God to that church, about that church. So, church, listen. Paul's not messing around. He's not giving some friendly advice. You know, hey, this might be a good idea. You could kind of take this or leave it. Or you might like some of these parts. Some of them you might not like, so you can set those aside. No, he's saying, listen. (laughs) He's commanding. He's speaking for God. Out of his God-given authority. Look at verse 3. He tells Timothy to charge. That word also, we're going to see it again in just a second. It also means command. He says to charge or command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So we're coming to the doctrine part of that in a second, but just note the command for now. 
Look over at chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. Again, Paul writing to Timothy says, Command, point number one, and teach, point number two, these things. That's the same word as one, three. Charge, command. These are authority words. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. Again, command these things. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. I charge, same word, or command you in the presence of God. Verse 14, to keep the commandment. And then look down at 6.17. As for the rich in this present age, charge or command them. Now go back to 3.15, where we started in the intro. In 3.15 again, Paul writes this whole thing, so that they may know how one ought to behave. Ought is authority. Ought implies a standard. Ought implies a requirement. Authority is simply one of the main themes of this letter. And the goodness of authority is one of the main themes of this letter. That's what chapter 3 is largely about. You're looking at the end of chapter 3. Look at the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is mostly about elders and deacons. The authority in the church. Elders are called overseers in chapter 3 verse one, you've heard the word bishop, you've heard the word episcopal, that's this word, episcopos. We don't like this word, but it's there. It's an authority. It literally means to oversee. That's why it's translated as overseeing. It's an authority word. But what is this authority for? Why are they given this authority, this, this call to oversee the church? Well, look at the end of verse 5. It's authority, chapter 3, verse 5. It's authority to care for God's church. That's the role of an elder. And we'll see when we get there that that is the role of the deacons as well. It's the role of the deacons to assist the elders in their role of caring for the church. And this authority is all about the church, the church which God loves. Acts 20, verse 28, if you want to uh, turn there. I'm just going to give you one verse. You don't have to. I think Paul references this verse in 1 Timothy 4.16, which we'll come to in a second. But Acts 20, verse 28 Acts 20 is Paul's final words to the church, the elders of Ephesus. 1 Timothy is Paul's words to Timothy, serving as some sort of interim elder in that same Ephesus. So Acts 20, Paul is speaking to elders in Ephesus. 1 Timothy, Paul is speaking to an elder in Ephesus about six or so years later. Paul says to those elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 28, he's speaking to the elders. He says, pay careful attention. To yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So again, authority. God has made you the authority in the church. Not so that you could do what you want and get what you want and throw your weight around and wield your authority for your own good and glory. But so that you would pay careful attention to them. Paul keeps going. Made you overseers, he says, to care for the church of God. That's the purpose of authority. It's, it's to seek the good of others. And why is this so important? Keep reading. Rest of the verse. To care for the church of God, which he, this is one of the most amazing verses in scripture, which he obtained with his own blood. And that's how much God cares for the church. 
He bought it. He purchased it. Paul can say with his own blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Elders, Mike, care for the church. That's the job. Because God purchased it with his own blood. We are to care for the church because look at how much God cares for the church. This is authority in action. This is what authority is supposed to be for. Authority is good. It is designed for the good of others. We flourish under the benevolent authority of God, and then we all of us flourish under the benevolent authority of those that God puts over us. First Timothy is all about authority. But that also means we're going to have to tackle chapter 2. First Timothy, or chapter 2 is also all about authority. Remember Paul's authority. Remember, he is commanding. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And some of you are probably cringing just hearing that. Right? Some of you are already reacting to and reacting against that. That's about as unpopular of a thing that you could say today. But it's there. It's God's word. We have to do something with it. We just spent a whole Sunday school looking at how our response to the word of God reveals to us our spiritual condition. That doesn't just include the nice sounding parts. That doesn't just include like God is love and the grace and all the nice parts. That includes the whole counsel of God. And this is why the concept of authority is so important. Are we going to submit to the authority of God and his word? Even when it comes to things like this. Even when everyone around us is saying, hey, no, 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 that's, that's sexist. No, that's, that's bigoted. Even when the churches around us are increasingly denying this thing. Will we still submit to God's word and to his authority when it's not popular? So we need to always be tracking how our heart is responding to God's word. You need to always be tracking how you react and respond to things that are clearly revealed in God's word. That's a great revelation of your heart. So we're going to have to address the question of women and authority in the church. It's just, it's just not that complicated. God's word is pretty clear. And God's word is always good. So Pastor Mike, I don't know where you went. I'll be praying for you. Um, see you guys. Oh, no, I'm no. I, I have no concerns about how well he's going to handle that text. So you need first a word of authority. It's no accident that as our culture has progressively shed all authority, it has progressively fallen apart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is the third Martin Lloyd-Jones today, twice in Sunday school. That was not on purpose. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, there can be no doubt whatsoever that all the troubles in the church today and most of the troubles in the world are due to a departure from the authority of the Bible. I completely agree. Paul, as an apostle of Christ, by command of God, is sent with the command of God and says, listen, good and godly authority is such a blessing for all of us. Right? Are we submissive to God's word and to God's authority? First Timothy can help us with that. Point number two. You also, though, need a word of instruction. Look at verse two. Back to First Timothy 1, verse 2. Paul. Apostle, command, authority. Verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. So Paul, older 
nearing the end of his ministry. Paul is going to die in the next year or two or so. We don't know exactly uh, the, the dates. We're in the mid-60s somewhere. Paul's at the end. Uh, he writes this letter to instruct Timothy, younger, still towards the beginning of his ministry. Timothy would have probably been somewhere in his, his 30s. But Timothy is actually one of the most important figures in the New Testament outside of Jesus and the apostles. Paul meets Timothy in Acts 16. Timothy ends up accompanying Paul on much of his second and third missionary journeys, serving sort of as as Paul's right-hand man. This letter to Timothy opens Paul an apostle. But if you remember all the way back to our study of Philippians, that letter opens Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. Paul does that in six of his 13 letters. In half of his letters, uh, Timothy is named in some way as having something to do with the, with the letter, it, it coming from Paul and Timothy. Okay, so Timothy's a big deal. But this letter is to Timothy. This letter is to instruct Timothy. And that comes out clearly in the rest of of the letter, but it's implied here in verse 2 even. And in just the fact that Paul writes to him, but also in the fact that Paul names Timothy as his spiritual child, right? Parents instruct their children. Parents, your job is to instruct your children. And third, in the fact that Timothy is named his spiritual child in the faith. Again, when we think of the word faith, we primarily think of belief. We think of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, justification by faith, right? We think subjectively of our faith, a trust that we put in Christ or Timothy's faith in Christ. But the noun faith can also refer objectively to to the faith, right? To the Christian faith, to the whole system of truths from God that reveal Christ, that that we are to put our faith in. Faith is belief. It is trustful belief in a person, but in a person that has revealed himself to us through words, who has revealed himself to us through propositional truths about himself. So the whole system of of doctrine and theology can be referred to as the faith. So Paul is writing in part to further instruct Timothy in that faith and the life that accords with that faith. Paul writes, as again we've seen in 3.15, to instruct Timothy and thus us in the doctrine and life of the church. So look at verse 3 again. Chapter 1, verse 3. We started with this. Let's come back to it. Why did Paul leave Timothy in Ephesus? What is he primarily writing to encourage Timothy to do now? He tells us, charge, command certain persons not to teach any different Doctrine. This is the foundational point of the letter. In the Greek, different doctrine is one word. Some think this is a word that's actually coined by Paul. We think. Uh, who knows? Hetero didaskalene. We know the word hetero just means different, of another kind. Didaskalos is just the Greek word for teacher. So the word just means to teach something different, the teaching of another kind. And this is the root of all of the problems in Ephesus. And I could make the case that this is the root of all of your problems, my problems, as well. I said last week that you could argue that all, or at least most, of our problems in the Christian life and our errors of thinking and feeling and doing result, first, from a forgetfulness of Christ or of a minimization 
of Christ. That is bad thinking about Christ resulting from bad teaching about Christ. We have a doctrine problem. And everything flows from this. Your doctrine is foundational. Your doing results from your believing. Your living results from your doctrine. You have some sort of doctrine. Everyone does. And so from the very outset, Paul commands, hey, charge them not to teach any different doctrine. Why? Because there is no different doctrine. There is only the doctrine. Look down at verse 10. Verse 10, sadly, both the ESV and the the KJV mask this. Ironically, it's the NIV that that gets this one right. It's not usually the case. In verse 10, Paul is listing behaviors that are contrary to sound doctrine. So again, there's an intimate connection. We're going to see this throughout the letter. Intimate connection between doctrine and living. But in the Greek of verse 10 there, there is an article that the ESV leaves out. An article, the, the, before sound doctrine. Literally, it says, contrary to the sound doctrine doctrine because there is no other true or sound doctrine there's only the one and again you don't like that word it just means teaching you don't like doctrine don't like theology well look at how it's paralleled and explained in verse 11 in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed god that's doctrine the gospel is doctrine the gospel of the glory of the blessed god the gospel of grace, the gospel, Romans 1.16, which is the power of God for salvation. That's what this whole letter is about. You know, we've said 1 Timothy is about the church. The church, 3.15, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. But look at it. Turn to 3.15. Let's, right, let's look at this for a second. That's a huge statement. Let's unpack what that means in the order of this. Back to 3.15. One commentator calls this the most significant phrase in all of the pastoral epistles. First, Second Timothy, and Titus. The phrase, the church, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Here's what's at stake in Ephesus. And here's what's at stake today. Here's what this church is and what it's for. Here's how eternally important the church is. Look at the verse, the end of verse 15. Notice that we'd expect it to say, It's actually flipped. We'd expect this verse to say that the truth is the pillar and buttress of the church. That's what we would think it would say. What's a buttress, by the way? It's like a support beam. It's a supporting wall. The King James translates this word ground. The NSB, NASB goes with the word support. Thinks it's something foundational, something, something supporting. But catch that Paul says not that the truth is the pillar and foundation of the church, which of course it is. We know that it is. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. Paul talks about the church, again, the household of God. We are a family. We are the house of God built on the foundation of the apostles, prophets, with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So again, that's our authority. That's our foundation, the truth of God found in the word of God. But that's not what Paul is saying. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he calls the church the pillar and buttress, ground, support, foundation. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, so it's a hard word. He says the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. That's huge. What, What does that mean? Well, it simply means that it is the role of the church to serve and support the glorious truth 
of the gospel. It is the role of the church to proclaim and to protect the glorious truth of the gospel. That gospel, again, that is the very power of God for salvation. That gospel that is the word of life. The gospel that reveals God and mediates God. That's what the church is for. Is that part of our corporate identity? Do we think of ourselves as a pillar and buttress of the truth? We have been tasked with the responsibility of preserving the most important thing in the world. That's our task, church. Preserving the most important thing in the world. We have been tasked with proclaiming the most important thing in the world. We have the only thing that can ultimately help anyone. Everyone can help people in many ways. Everyone can do relative good to others in any way. Only the church can help people in the ultimate way. Only we can do ultimate good because only we have been given the glorious gospel of grace that reveals to us the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Church, we have to take that seriously. That has to be fundamental to our identity. And that means that we have to take doctrine and theology seriously because Paul takes it very seriously. And he, as an apostle of Christ, is our authority. Therefore, we must take it very seriously. And 1 Timothy can help us do that. I'm I'm desperate to figure out some way to convince you of the importance of thinking deeply on the things of God. Can I understand that we're not all wired the same. I understand that we all don't have to get degrees in theology. I understand we all, we all don't have to get all excited about parsing out the complexity of the hypostatic union. But, but, I also understand that Psalm 1 says that blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. And that's not for the theology buffs. That's not for the pastors. That's not for the professors. It's for everyone. Everyone who is in Christ. Blessing comes through meditating on God's law day and night. It's a biblical command and a biblical promise of blessing. Deep thinking on the things of God. For loving theology and delighting in doctrine. Because those things are of, from, to, for, and about God himself. So Paul writes us this letter to give us a word of instruction, to give Timothy a word of instruction. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. I mentioned in the email that you could argue that this is the theme verse of the letter. You could. 315 is most likely, but this is possible. Look at 416. Here's what Paul tells Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself. In other words, your life, your behavior, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Listen, I mentioned this in the email. This is is what I want you to be praying for me while we're away. This is one of the reasons for sabbatical. Uh, Keep a close watch on yourself. That's what I want to do in the sabbatical. Uh, Robert Murray McShane famously said, the the, the, the thing that my church most needs from me is my own personal holiness. You frequently see in, in books and pastoral letters that uh, this, this one's serious, right? That a church generally just never progresses spiritually beyond the spirituality of its pastor. That's, that's weighty. That's significant. 
I want to give my time to the Lord and to the things of the Lord. I want you to be praying this verse for me to keep a close watch on myself and on my teaching for the glory of God, for the good of myself, for the good of my family, and for the good of this church. This is what Paul uh, instructs Timothy to do. This is one of the things that I want to do in the next 12 weeks. But for now, I want us to see that Paul is very concerned with teaching. In that verse, Paul directly connects teaching to salvation because that teaching is the teaching of the gospel that is salvation. Because Paul knows, look up at chapter 4, verse 1, because Paul knows, chapter 4, verse 1, that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Again, there again is the faith used in the objective sense, the doctrine and teaching of the church. Many will, then when Paul was writing, and now when we are reading, many are departing that faith now by devoting themselves to some other teaching. Again, and when he says teachings of demons, again, we get all weird and we think all crazy, mystical, supernatural, spiritual things, crazy stuff. No, remember, there's only one doctrine. There is only the truth. Thus, anything that diverts from that truth and from that gospel is deceit and deception. And that, by definition, is demonic. Right? You know, again, we think the horror movies and the spinning heads and the vomiting. No, it's, it's deception and it's false teaching. And it's Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan puts himself in pulpits and speaks things that sound really, really nice and kind of, kind of close. Um, all of these things, if they diverge from the gospel in any way, are demonic teaching, according to Paul. Because there's nothing more important than the truth, church. As long as you're stuck with me, you're going to be stuck with us talking about the truth and theology and doctrine because we need to care for the truth as those who have gone before us have cared for the truth. We owe so much to those who have gone before us and who have defended the faith and who have stood strong and faithful and orthodox in the, faith of great, in the face of great um, persecution and pressure. Or, or like Spurgeon, for example. Everybody loves Spurgeon. He's so quotable and nice and encouraging. I don't know. Spurgeon was a lion in the pulpit. If you ever go read his sermons, he did not mess around. He once said this from the pulpit, He who does not hate the false does not love the true. And he to whom it is all the same, whether it be God's word or man's, is himself unrenewed at heart. At heart. Oh, if some of you were like your fathers, you would not have tolerated in this age the wagon loads of trash under which the gospel has been of late buried by ministers of your own choosing. That's, that's excellent. The wagon loads of trash under which the gospel has been buried. Church, we're the pillar and buttress of the truth. Our job is to protect that gospel at all costs, to remove that trash, and to point out that trash. Listen to J. Gresham Machen. He was hugely important in protecting the church 100 years ago. As so many were going mainline liberal, all the big churches are going in this one direction. And the same thing is happening today in what is now called progressive Christianity, because this word sounds so positive and encouraging. It's not Christianity at all. We need a machin. He said this 100 years ago. Again, men tell us that our preaching should be positive and not negative, that we can preach the truth without attacking error. But if we follow that advice... We shall have to close our Bibles 
and desert its teachings. The New Testament is a polemic book almost from beginning to end. It is when men have felt compelled to take a stand against error that they have risen to the really great heights in the celebration of the truth. Church, I want this to be a place where we celebrate the truth. And let's boldly, graciously, wisely, but let's boldly stand against error. Because there's nothing more important than the truth that reveals the God to us is, who is life. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Therefore, there is nothing more important than the right teaching of that truth. You get the truth that is salvation wrong, you get death. You get the words that are life wrong, you get death. The stakes could not be higher. And so that's why Paul writes this letter to Timothy. And that's why he tells them, hey, charge these men not to teach any different doctrine. And in chapter 3, hey, elders, go back to chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. Back to the authorities in the church. The elders are overseers. Into verse 2. There's all these qualifications. Catch this one. He must be able to teach. And that's another word, form of the same word that we saw back in verse 3. Uh, didacticos, teach, teaching, teacher. You read through that list in the beginning of chapter 3, and you read the rest of it, and it's all somewhat ordinary. That all the other qualifications are character qualifications. Most of these things are simply the things that should characterize every Christian that has been saved by the grace of God and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right? These are just the, the fruit of the Spirit, except this one. This, then, is the one, must be able to teach, that sets apart and distinguishes the elder. He must, by the grace of God, be a certain kind of person, a Christ kind of person. There must be a Christ-like character, but Christ was also very much a teacher. He was the very word of God. He possessed the very words of life. Remember we saw last week in 334 of John that he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Right? He's got those words of eternal life. And what he does then, as we're going to go and see in the rest of John, is he's going to entrust those words to his apostles, who then will entrust them to people like Timothy, who then will entrust them through the word to us. That, listen, that's my job, church. The word is my job. The word is Mike's job. That's how we exercise authority. That's how we lead in the church. We are to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word as the means through which we care for the church. Because as we saw in Sunday school, God works out his will through his word. And it is a word of instruction for the church. First Timothy is particularly a word of instruction for the church. It tells us how to behave ourselves in God's household. In church, we're a family. This is our spiritual family. We try to emphasize that with our girls. When we pray and we're going, we're going to see our spiritual family. Hey, it's, we're excited to go away, but we're sad to leave our spiritual family. We want to emphasize the unity, uh, the bond that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul tells us, and he writes to us this letter to teach us how to behave ourselves in God's household. To live in a way that honors him, that honors one another. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to lay out for us how to believe, what to believe, and then how to behave. So this gives us the sound doctrine that we need. And this is why, in part, 
First Timothy is going to be perfect uh, a series to lead us up into the fall. We've talked about the 1689, right? We've talked about the, the Second London Baptist Confession. I've taught through this. I've explained this. Um, we've seen the importance of sound doctrine. Well, this gives us that, right? We want to adapt this, adopt this as our statement of faith. When I get back in August, we're going to take a little bit of time in Sunday school to teach through some of the big ideas and key ideas so that, Lord willing, we can then be ready to adopt this as our statement of faith. So hopefully, I'm prayerful that 1 Timothy can help show us our need for a a more robust biblical statement of faith. Because I'm committed to doing everything that I can to convince you of the beauty and the glory and the goodness of a rich, covenant, Christ-centered, grace-filled theology. Christ is primacy and priority. Therefore, we should make our knowing Christ a primacy and priority. That means we must make theology and doctrine of Christ a primacy and priority. For John 17.3, knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent is eternal life. You'll hear often today that doctrine discourages, doctrine divides. Biblically, it's actually doctrine delights and doctrine unites because doctrine reveals to us the God who is life and who is love. And so you need a word of instruction church and first timothy can help with that and third and finally and i'll be brief here this is no mere word of bare instruction it is and you desperately need a word of grace what's the first thing paul the apostle writes to timothy his true child in the faith grace mercy and peace from god the father and christ jesus our lord and what a what a word Grace, mercy, peace. That's the goal of God's authority. That is the ultimate and guaranteed outcome of the authority of God on behalf of his people. This is the content of God's instruction. Grace, mercy, peace. And that's the final word that I want to leave you with while we are away. There is nothing more important for you to know and understand than the grace of God. God's unmerited favor. But remember, even more, even better, not just unmerited, God's demerited favor. Right? We didn't just not deserve God's blessing and favor. We deserved the opposite. We deserved God's judgment, and we deserved God's wrath. But that's not what we got. How could that be? Oh, we already read it, actually. I can't wait to listen to the sermon on 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Look at those verses again. We'll close with these verses. Who really was this Paul with all this authority and all these commanding, writing all about this grace? Who was this man? Look at verse 13. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul was terrible. But God... Rest of verse 13. But I received mercy. Verse 14. The grace of our Lord overflowed, overflowing grace for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here it is, the wonderful 115. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, authority. Pay attention. Listen. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's grace, church. That is a wonderfully 
concise and comprehensive statement of Christ's whole mission. The salvation of sinners. Not good people. Not nice people. Not moral people. Not religious people. Not people who try really, really, really hard. No, sinners. And Paul says he was the worst of them all. And Henry and I have been arguing, which of us is, is second place, right? We are right up there with him. And isn't that sin is no small thing. We, just, we so minimize sin that we just don't understand judgment and hell, and thus we don't understand the glory of grace. But sin is stupidity. It is selfishness. It separates us from the God who is life. Therefore, sin is death. That's what Paul deserved. That's what I absolutely deserved. But God, but God loved us in this way, that he gave his son. He gave his son to die so that we could live. That's why he is life. That's why he is uh, primary and priority. That's why he is our authority. That's why we must love his instruction, because look who he is. He is verse 1, our Savior and our hope. He is verse 3. He is grace, mercy, peace, and Lord, do you see the beautiful juxtaposition there of how Paul combines love and compassion with authority there? He's the Lord. That's authority. Oh, but he's grace and he's mercy and he is peace. All of that comes together and is found only in Christ who is God's grace toward us. He is all that you need, church. And he is ultimately what this letter is about. How he and his gospel of grace forms and informs who we are as his church. What we are to believe and proclaim as his church, and then how we are to live and behave as his church. He is what you need this summer. He is what I want to leave you with. He is what I hope you will think much on and grow much in this summer, Jesus Christ. You read it last week from Newton. Oh, he is a suitable Savior. So listen to him. Obey him. Delight in him. He is grace. And grace is what you need. And so notice how Paul structures this wonderful letter. He opens with grace, mercy, and peace in the very second verse. And then six chapters later, in 621, he ends very abruptly. I want to see who does, I think it's Peter, who does the end and this abrupt ending. 621, Paul closes with grace be with you. And church, that's the structure of the Christian life. It opens with grace, and it closes with grace, and it's all grace in between. And thus, there is nothing better that I could pray for you while I'm away, and nothing better that I would ask that you pray for me and for my family. Grace be with you, which simply means God be with you. The God of all grace. Know him. Uh, grow in him. Submit to his authority. Right? Uh, learn his instruction Oh, delight in his grace. And 1 Timothy can help you to do that. If you would, bow with me. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for how rich and deep it is. Father, we thank you that the, the best of sermons cannot even come close to revealing the infinite and eternal glories that are found in your word because it is Christ that is found in your word. Uh, we barely begin to scratch the surface. But we thank you that we can know him. 
because you have spoken to us and you have revealed yourself to us. Father, we did not deserve your words. We did not deserve your revelation. But Father, you have come and you have given it to us. And Father, we were marching straight for hell, um, freely, happily, uh, deservingly. And you came after us in Christ. Father, show us that. Father, show us who we are in our sin. Father, show us who Christ is and who we are in him. Father, magnify his glory. Magnify his grace. Show us how wonderful and beautiful and kind and merciful he is. And capture our hearts with him. Father, whatever it is in our lives right now that we are most captured by, Father, I pray that you would remove those things. Whatever those things that we are most depending upon and most looking forward to and relying on. Father, I pray that my hope would not be in 12 weeks of rest, in 12 weeks of break. I pray that my hope would be in Jesus Christ and that that time could be used only uh, for him and to be with him and to know him and to, to, to meditate on him. Father, I pray the same thing uh, for my church, that their hope wouldn't in any way be in me or in Mike or in any of us, Father, but it would be only in Christ. Father, it is you who build your church. Father, it is you who support uh, your church, and it is your word that is our ultimate and final authority. So, Father, I pray that you would drive my brothers and sisters in Christ to that word in the weeks to come. I pray that I would come back and they would be stronger and healthier and happier and um, more knowing and loving of Jesus Christ. Um, Father, I pray that they would spend every single day of these 12 weeks in your word. Father, may I not spend a single day of these 12 weeks not in your word. And I pray that every single one of us would do the same thing because you have given us the words of eternal life that reveal to us your son, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for how apathetic we are about life and about Jesus himself. Father, use this time away to strengthen both of us and to grow all of us and to bring us back together in August better and ready to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, to proclaim the gospel, to love you and to love sound teaching and to behave in a way that loves and serves one another and honors and glorifies you. Father, use First Timothy to accomplish your good and gracious will for Woodside Community Church. And we ask and we pray all of this only in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.